In the present paper, I will introduce the notion of innocence and demonstrate how an accurate description of the phenomenon requires a rigorous practice of phenomenology giving voice to actual performance coming from various backgrounds. If I observe a composer walking at a table, I can see him writing what sings in his head. If I go to one of the Keith Jarrett's concerts, I can hear and see him improvising what he hears in his head. If I watch the video of Glenn Gould rehearsing Bach in his room, I can see how he plays on the piano what he hears from Bach. Playing music does not go without singing in the head, or even singing out loud for those that it helps. If I don't pay attention to the inner song, if I don't listen to it, then I will only perform something mechanically, compose something that would be a patchwork of other tunes, or improvise something repeating other things already existing. The inner song is what gives life to the performance. Moreover, I would say that it is what brings the performance to existence. Singing in the head while playing or rehearsing looks trivial. Any musician, even an amateur, would say that it is the foundation of music. However, I argue that this almost insignificant phenomenon is precisely the heart of music practice, and for the phenomenologist, a door open to various uncovered regions of consciousness. In my research, I call inner song the phenomenon of music imagination corresponding to the action, both trivial and crucial, of singing in the head. I use it in the particular case of music practice and explore it from the point of view of the musician, him or herself. My research is therefore based on the Husserlian framework, but also on my own experience as an amateur musician. I play cello since I am a kid and I'm currently learning a folk instrument from Greece and on the experience imparted by more than 50 musicians I have interviewed in the past 10 years. After 10 years researching this topic through a constant dialogue both with phenomenology and music practice, I can now offer a detailed description of the inner song. The expression inner song has two definitions. First, in a generic sense, as the musical object of imagination. Second, in a particular sense, as related to three music practices. A, the inner song of the composer as pure fantasy, B, the inner song of interpretation as image consciousness, and C, the inner song of improvisation as sign consciousness. In these three cases, the inner song is given to consciousness because an imaginative voice voices it in consciousness, thus allowing it to appear against the background of the imaginary as a unified object. The voice provides two things. First, the sensuous content of the inner song, the flesh of the sound, and second, its temporality in the form of a succession, before and an after. I cannot offer a detailed description in this paper, so I will only sketch the various layers constituting the inner song and provide their main characteristics. I'll describe first the imaginary as its background, second, the voice that it is its principle of individu individuation. And finally, the three forms of the inner song as A, pure fantasy, in the case of the inner song of the composer, B, image consciousness, in the case of the inner song of the interpreter, and C, sign consciousness, in the case of the inner song of the improviser. So first of all, the imaginary. The imaginary field of the musician is made of sound, emotion, colors, images, noises, tunes, etc. It sounds sometimes continuously. Musicians uh, that I met, and also me sometimes, I can say that there's always something singing in my head. As soon as I'm alone, I have some music singing in, in my head. 
Well, I describe the imaginary using a Husserlian concept that um, I found in fantasy image consciousness, essentially. I modify it. For me, the imaginary is a region of consciousness, first founded in the perceptual field, and second, modifying it. The imaginary is founded in the perceptual field in the sense that it is ontologically dependent on it. So in Husserl's Logical Investigation 3, um, foundation means ontologically dependent. Imagining starts with perceiving. Musicians say that the sound of the street, any melody, anything smelled, touched or heard participates in the constitution of the world from which the inner song springs. Consequently, the imaginary is made of the same kind of data as the perceptual field. First, sensuous, but also feeling sensations, desires and volition all of them coming with a certain excitement. However, when the data of perception are given in the imaginary, they are represented, presented again, but in a, in a different way, modified, accompanied by a different excitement. In his work, Husserl distinguishes the content of perception, called sensations, from the content of imagination, called phantasms. The distinction is not always clear, because it is as problematic to claim that they differ because of their content as to claim that they differ because of their act of apprehension. For me, they differ because of their milieu, the place of their givenness. One is given in the field of perception that has certain characteristics, primarily that it presents the object as existing, whereas the other is given in the field of imagination that has other characteristics, primarily that it represents the object that matter not for their existence, but for their aesthetic impact on consciousness. Once the data of perception are given in the imaginary, they are given in a new horizon of apprehension with a different color, a different meaning, fantasized, deformed, and reformed. If I hear a certain chord in perception, for example, it can be given again in imagination, but it would sound different, more joyful, less intense, with a different rhythm, etc. As the imaginary has a temporality, it also modifies the data along with their temporalities. Indeed, I understand the temporality of the imaginary not as a constitutive temporality, but as a constituting temporality. This means that, first, it finds its temporal ground in the primary impression, and second, it is itself characterized by a suspended temporality that is like a quasi-present, always at hand. And third, it modifies or constitutes the temporality of the data that it represents. The constitution of new objects made of the hyalitic data of the imaginary and characterized by their own temporality happened thanks to a voice. Indeed, the inner song manifests itself against its background because of an imaginary voice that voices it. As musicians say, it sings in me. This voice, and this is um, way more obvious in the case of singing, for example. This voice starts in a primary impression in the living body. It is then the principle of individuation of delimitation that allows the inner song to be manifested against the floating creative abundance of the imaginary. Without this voice, no particular object would be singled out of the multiplicity. We would only have a chaos in some way. I explained earlier how the imaginary is founded in the perceptual field. Similarly, the imaginative voice, as a voice springing out of the imaginary, 
is also founded in the conceptual voice. Thus, in order to understand it, I must explain the constitution of the perceived voice. I describe it as constituted through the synthesis of two different voices, and I elaborated this concept using Derrida, Speech and Phenomenon, and also Husserl. First is the voice apprehended as corporal, and second the voice apprehended as light. In the first case, the voice is giving, given through the perception of the ear. It is given as a corporal that can be perceived by others as well. I can hear my voice as something almost external to me. That's the meaning of that kind of voice. In the second case, the voice is given through the feeling of the living body. And again, this is very obvious with the singers because they have to be able to feel their voice, where it comes from, how it develops, etc. It is given as life. Its constitution is part of the constitution of the living body as a whole. It cannot be perceived by others. In this latter case, the voice is constituted through the vibration of the body feeling itself, touching itself. In other words, I argue that it is constituted in tactility, therefore localized in the living body, and consequently providing a primary impression. This is important for the notion of temporality, then. The Husserl's relates to the notion of living body. The perceived voice is constituted as a unified object through a synthesis uniting the two different modes of givenness as corpor and life. There is therefore a co-constitution. Here, I argue that the voice as light takes precedence over the voice as corpor. Indeed, it can be given alone, whereas the voice apprehended as corpor is always also apprehended as light. The imaginative voice is found in on the voice, in this voice, in the sense that it is ontologically dependent on it. So the notion of foundation has the same meaning as it has um, with the imaginary field founded in perception. As such, it provides First, the flesh of the sound of the inner song made of the hile, and second, the first layer of the temporality of the inner song, which is a temporal succession enfolded through vocalization. As I vocalize something, I unfold it in temporality, there is a before and an after. The voice is the first layer of the constitution of the object. I argue that it is constituted through passive synthesis. It is an essential feature of the inner song, whatever form of consciousness it takes then. In other words, the inner song always has a primary layer constituted passively in the same way, and then it is possible to differentiate three forms of the inner song as pure fantasy for the inner song of the composer, image consciousness for the inner song of the interpreter, and sign consciousness for the inner song of the improviser. These three forms being distinct because they are constituted by three different kinds of acts, three different kinds of active synthesis. As opposed to Husserl, who uses the constitution of the Einbildung as a model to understand imagination, I use the inner song as pure fantasy as the model of my description. Indeed, I argue that whatever form it has, the inner song is always first and foremost constituted in imagination, sometimes freely, sometimes guided by an image or a sign. Indeed, even when there is a perception of a score, the score is only prescribing how to imagine. It does not depict it as it is the case in photography, for example. Thus, interpreting is not just about playing what is written, it is about imagining it, feeling it, bringing it to life in the imaginary through representation. I work with this uh, notion of uh, prescription with Roman Ingarden. Earlier, I characterized the imaginary as a reproductive field. It indeed produces something new through the reshaping of something already given. In other words, there is a representation because there is a previous presentation. Thus, the inner song as pure fantasy 
is related to memory. However, it is not a souvenir because rightly it creates something new with the souvenir. Listening to the expense of composers had allowed me to identify four elements. First, the idea, which, which is the first level of non-intentional passive synthesis from the matter itself. So um, I get something, it's almost that I'm passively receiving an idea, it comes to me. Second, the development of the idea, which is a progressive sketching of the object through successive modification. So it's the work of the composer who is trying to grasp the inner song, modify it, write it, etc. Third, the interpretation of the inner song, which is a reflexive process to apprehend the object that goes also with the development of the, of the object. It allows the composer to hear the inner song and decide what they want. And here the notion of decision is very important because we choose what we want to write and what we don't want to write. And fourth, the end of the modification, a full stop, which is a conscious decision to close a series of modifications. At some point, I'm done. I give my composition back to the publisher, for example, and that's the end. I argue that the first element is given through a spontaneous association of sounds in passive synthesis. In this sense, it is received by the musician. Then in composition, the development of the idea is free in the sense that it's not guided by your perception, but it implies certain rules. There are possibilities or impossibilities in composition. So especially in classical music composition, there are some things that the composer can do because it's supposed to sound good and some others that it cannot be done, as well as boundaries. The time to actually write a piece, for example, um, for which instrument it's, it's uh, supposed to, to be directed, etc. The whole process ends when the object is considered fully constituted. However, I would say that further modifications are always possible de jure, even if they are not made de facto. The constitution of the inner song of the interpreter presents a very different intentional act. I characterize it as an image consciousness because there's a relationship of likeness between the represented object of the score and the noema, which is the inner song. Indeed, through an appropriate reading of the score, the musicians tries to get what the score really signifies. It is not necessarily what the composer has in mind. It is also not reproducing exactly what the score means. It is representing an imagination, Vorstellen, an object that has a relationship of likeness with what the score represents. For this reason, I describe the inner song of the interpreter following the structure of the Einbildung described by Husserl in Fantasy, Image, Consciousness and Memory. This structure is made of three elements that are presented as following the case of the inner song of the interpreter. First, the physical object, which is the score as corpus. I have like something in, in my hands, um, in, made in paper, for example. Second, the build object, which is the score as it carries a system of sign. So the score carries something. It's not just an object, it contains something. And third, the build object, which is the music represented in the score. The inner song is the noema formed in consciousness through the reading of the score. This is even more obvious uh, with sight reading, for example. When there's absolutely no instrument, good musicians are able to hear something just by reading. They hear a sound from a sign. In this structure, the physical object does not really matter for the constitution of the inner song. It is only the beer or something else. What matters is the relationship between build object and build subject, between the sign and what it represents. In this relationship, the build object does not matter for itself, but that it represents the build subject. There is therefore a conflict of representation. The aperceived build subject is sized upon through the perceived build object. 
So what matters is not exactly what I'm reading, it's what I'm, I'm intuiting through the reading. The constitution of the inner song happens through two acts. First, an act of interpretation of the given through reflection. Second, an act of imagination. Consciousness reaches then what is perceived through an act of judgment. As various musicians say when explaining how they research the composer's life, cultural style, etc., the interpretation of the sign goes along with the process of enrichment of the, in of the understanding. So I remember a Japanese flutist who was telling me how she would go to museums to see European artworks, or she would read books for children in German to understand Brahms, to understand um, the French culture for Debussy, etc. A synthesis of apprehension then unites the helladic data coming from the perception of the score with the helladic data coming from the imaginary in order to constitute one unified object of imagination. Finally, when the inner song is guided by the prescription of a sign, but the sign points toward a represented object that does not have a relationship of likeness with the noema, I describe the inner song as sign consciousness. And I take this dis distinction between image consciousness and sign consciousness in the logical investigation. Indeed, improvising means elaborating from a sign that points to something larger than itself. In my research, I work primarily with the example of improvisation based on the basic score, but I want to enlarge the definition of sign in order to argue that it is not necessarily a visual perception. In folk music, one learns through the fingering, for, for instance. I'm currently learning a folk, uh, folk instrument, and we just, like, one lesson is learning a song, learning how to put my fingers on the instrument, listening to the sounds, and then I will learn how to do more than this basic um, tune. In this case, however, the elementary fingering is still pointing to more than what it represents, and the basic melody is enriched during the process of improvisation. Improvisation is therefore always characterized as a consciousness of sign with a visual or tactual perception pointing outward to a represented object that is not related to the inner song through likeness. And this is very important because this is the difference between image consciousness and sign consciousness. In sign consciousness, there is no likeness. Even more than is the case in image consciousness, there is an essential poverty of the sign in comparison to what it represents. So this notion of poverty of the sign I found it in Roman Ingarden that insists in this, on, on this idea saying that the musician fills the gap in some way. The sign is only a point d'appui to create something new. From interviews with musicians who are also improvisers, I can identify six elements as a part of the inner song as sign consciousness. First, a necessary primary process of digestion of the elementary data provided by the sign. So I learn the basics, basic tune. I learn um, the song, for example. Second, a crystallization of the given in imaginary. So I borrow this expression of crystallization from the French writer Stendhal that describes the process of falling in love. So we have something that is basic and maybe normal, and with imagination and in several steps, this thing got enriched. Third, the embodiment in a living body reacting to sounds. Fourth, the connection and moreover the affective connection with the instrument through tactility. So this is very important also in interpretation, but playing music is also happening through this connection with the instruments. Um, and the more connected I am, the more able I am to improvise. Fifth, the mastering of technical possibilities that makes the expression of the complex inner song possible. And here, it's very different from um, 
interpretation because not all great musicians who are great interpreters can improvise because they don't have this freedom with the technical possibilities. And the reaction to the environment and to the condition of realization of the improvisation. And this is more for a collective improvisation, improvising with other people, reacting to their improvisation in order to develop my improvisation. The examination of the inner song of the improviser demonstrates in a more dramatic manner the very close relationship between performing and hearing the inner song. Indeed, as opposed to composition that might imply a temporal distance between the time of the composition and the performance, or the interpretation in which the musician can walk on the inner song independently of the performance, improvising supposes an immediate performance of the inner song. Grasping the inner song means here grasping it with the finger. So composition, I can compose something that will be played in six months. Improvisation is uh, very different. I, I sing, I have something singing in my head and I grasp it and play it immediately. There's this immediacy between my finger and my imagination. So in conclusion, I would like to finish this paper by going back to the words of a great violinist and conductor, Rudolf Varshay, who finished the composition of the 10th symphony from Mahler. In the documentary, The Note, A Lifelong Quest for One Single Note, he says, I finally heard what I was searching for. And he continues by evoking the indescribable joy that sprung out along with it. I can identify two important things from these quotes. First, the idea that grasping the inner song implies a gradual fulfillment of the intention. And second, that the complete fulfillment of the intention corresponds to the feeling of finally getting the object, which is a source of joy. And I could consider this joy as a third element. I did not mention in this paper the question of the various degrees of fulfillment of the intention in the givenness of the inner song. I would like to argue that it goes from a more elementary fulfillment to a complete fulfillment of the intention in some very rare and heavenly moments. Any form of the inner song Pure fantasy, image consciousness, or sign consciousness supposes a process of searching for the inner song, sizing upon it, and progressively grasping it. It is what the composer tries to do when he writes and edits his writing. It is what the interpreter does during the endless hours of practice at home. It is what the improviser is doing when he plays on stage. I would argue that most of the time we don't have the patience to be demanding in our search. We get used to imperfect grasping, especially us amateur musicians. However, the more I try to get into the life of greatest musician of all time through reading, documentaries, or even personal encounters, the more I think that this search for perfection, to finally hear what we are searching for, is the mark of the greatest. And so many musicians can testify um, and say that this or that conductor, for example, um, Selby Dutch or Fort Van Glea were extremely demanding with the musicians because they wanted to get exactly what they were hearing. And that's also what the singer, I mean, it's the same for all musicians, singer, violinist. They are demanding because they want to play exactly what they hear. They want to perform the inner song. The joy of finding it and having reached this peak might not happen so often, but I think that it is an unforgettable reward when it happens. I thank you for your attention. <laughs>